Welcome to another episode of Grace on Tap. Grace on Tap is a podcast dedicated to the history and the theology of the Lutheran Reformation all over a nice cold beer. I'm Evan Gertner. And I'm Mike Yagley. Well, uh, we're going to continue our, our uh, discussions on the, uh, on the postals. We are now moving into, we're still in the first Sunday in Advent. Um, this is now, we, we did the epistle, the last episode, and now we're moving into the gospel. The gospel in, in Luther's time, the gospel for the first Sunday in Advent was always um, uh, Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. Right. So they used the historic one-year lectionary, which means that every year it was the same readings on that particular Sunday, and that made church sermon commentaries very helpful because they weren't good for just one year or once every three years. They were good every year. So this church postal that Luther produced was a helpful resource for pastors every single year they prepared to preach. One of the problems they had was coming up with something new every year. You went over the same stuff year after year after year, and these pastors needed to have some ability to pivot to one subject or another uh, and cover all sorts of stuff. And and so what Luther did with the postals is it covers, I'm going to say, dozens just for this this Sunday, either through the epistle or through the gospel. He has a couple dozen of different ideas that these pastors could 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 pull from and ha- and build a whole sermon on. So the postal, which was something that would be sent to pastors to help them prepare a sermon, functions a lot like a verse-by-verse commentary, but for the purposeful instruction of how to preach the text. So one of the things that Luther says in the introduction of the, of the gospel here is he goes back and in the beginning, in the introduction to the whole postal, he mentioned that you can approach the gospel either as a gift to which we cling to in faith or as a work of Christ as an example. And then he reiterates that in the opening to this gospel. He goes back and he says, okay, Previously, I said that it's either a gift to which we cling to in faith, or it is we can look to the gospel as an example from Christ. And so, when he structures this, he has a whole section just looking at this reading, Matthew 21, 1 through 9, through the eyes of faith. And so, that's what we're going to be starting out with today. The gospel lesson for Matthew chapter 21, the first Sunday in Advent, reads, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me, and if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, Your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. 
So Luther kicks off this his his commentary or his his review of this this scripture, and he has a great beginning where he he talks about faith, because this is this whole first section is looking at that reading through the eyes of faith, and and there is a so this gospel especially encourages and requires faith for it presents Christ in His gracious coming who none may receive or accept unless he believes in him to be the one and agrees with the way the gospel portrays him. And so Luther's going to be spending uh, spending a lot of time talking about how this gospel portrays Christ in this in this specific moment in time. And one of the key things he's going to show for us is that the Christ that's revealed in this gospel lesson is not a Christ that we just observe as an objective reader, but that one we receive as our Christ, our King. And he'll point different things in the text that show that Christ is the Savior that comes to the people um, and that we receive this Christ through the gift of grace and mercy. One of the things that he talks about here is that you've got this guy Right, this guy's coming in. He's he's riding on a borrowed donkey. Right, it's not even a it's not even a donkey that was trained to carry somebody like the kings in that day had. It's just this guy coming in on a donkey, completely not the type of person that you would make a big deal out of. And that you know this is the king, and so that is the faith. It is in faith where we. And Luther is going to return to this over and over and over again, that that when we see Christ in this specific setting, there is no reason to believe, except through faith, there is no reason to believe that he is your king. He doesn't come with any sort of pageantry that would illustrate great power or force that would frighten or oppress people. He clearly comes to help them and to carry their burdens and to take responsibility for them. And this is a mirror to how the donkey is described. So a donkey is a beast of burden that carries and helps man. Christ, who will become one who carries our burdens to help man. There's a wonderful just mirroring that happens between this donkey and Christ that Martin Luther illustrates. And what's really interesting, like Evan just mentioned, there, you know, Christ comes with no pageantry. There is no big, you know, trumpets playing or all the different things that that would proclaim a great king. Yet the people in faith respond with pageantry. The they, people, yeah, they place their clothes, they place the branches, they place all these things on the road. It's it's not a moment of fear. It's not a moment of terror. There's not a conquering that's happening. There's this moment of unity between the crowd and Christ who arrives. It's a wonderful moment where they cheerfully receive him. Yeah. Completely pleased with him. And, and, and he is pleased with them. You know, so, so you have this moment where, where through faith, the crowd is expressing what, what this great king who has come only through faith. And their faith is grounded in the scriptures that, that came before. They are looking to the scriptures and they're seeing this great king. They see in Christ the great king that was pro- proclaimed previously. Through faith in the scriptures, they're seeing Christ as he truly is. Now, they will change their mind, but at this moment, this is accepting Christ in faith. 
And then Luther will point out, uh, apart from Luke chapter 19, where Christ weeps over the city of Jerusalem. And as Luke writes, it, it happens because the city neither recognizes or receives this grace that he's bringing. And the, the injury of the city not seeing him is revealed to be painful to the Christ. And I want to highlight, it's, it's interesting how he brings forward Luke, because Matthew is the Palm Sunday entrance reading that's going to be happening on this first Sunday in Advent. And Luther is recognizing that there are some details from other parts of Scripture that help inform how we see this moment. And he's going to go throughout this portion of the postal. He's going to be touching back to that reading from Matthew, because this really made an impression on Luther. The fact that, that Christ comes as the king, and, and he's not coming as a, as a warrior king. He's not coming with, with a battle cry or with any sort of terror. He comes humbly. He comes with, you know, just, just in, 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 in kindness and gentleness, as, as the gospel reading says. And his, when he is rejected, he knows he is going to be rejected. He knows he is going to be ultimately hated in this place. And he looks over those that he knows will hate him, and he weeps for them. And this is, this is, this is a moment where this is the, the king, the great king who, who no longer, he is not the king of wrath. He is the king, a humble king, who even loves his enemies. There's a strong emphasis on the power of the word to influence people, and it doesn't need the fright of this world to gain control, that the word that is in the flesh brings the influence of God into the world, which makes me think of a a leadership book I was just reading this week, written by Charlie Mueller Sr. uh, several years ago, writing about just pastoral leadership. And in that book, Mike, he comments about how a pastor must trust the word of God to be the influence for leadership in the congregation. He says that there are two types of leadership and the pastor must choose the first. One is a leadership of influence that trusts your material, trust the word of God. If you're preaching the word of God, your community will change. They will transform. And he says the other type of leadership, which a pastor must steer away from, is a leadership of power and control that brings about fright and force to gain an edge. And he said, as a pastor, you will have the ability to use either kind of leadership, but you must trust the power of influence, even though at moments it will seem like it takes longer. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I've been a manager of people for 30 plus years now. And one of the first lessons I learned as a manager was that somebody wrote on a board, they had two circles, the small circle and then a big circle. And they said that in the small circle, they put control. And in the big circle, they called influence. And the, the small circle, they said, you know what's in that small circle? What you control is you. That's it. You don't control anybody else. All you get is influence over others. Always remember that. And so you you have influence and you build influence. You can extend your circle of influence through things like, you know, and I would, I, you know, over the course of my, my professional career, um, I've decided that, or I've come to the conclusion that, that the gospel <laughs> enables us to have greater influence. 
you know, that it's through the gospel, this, this hum- humility that we have in the gospel that, that we learn through Christ actually strengthens our influence. Um, that's a big sto- big discussion. I, right. I, I would... Well, I think that bleeds from this text where Luther is highlighting how the Christ arrives. He arrives with a heart of faith. The pageantry is received by the people not because they're afraid of him and they must bow, otherwise they'll get beaten. Uh, they bow because they see the Lord is arriving. And most importantly from this section then uh, is Christ's kindness and gentleness is introducing the Savior that is arriving to be their beast of burden to help man in their labor. So one right after this first opening section where Luther lays out these four points, the first that the, the faith in the nature of Christ, the response and pageantry and joy, those are two different ones. Of the people. Of the people. And then Christ weeping. Those are the four big points that he hits, and that's done boom, boom, boom in the first page. First page. And then he goes on and he's going to introduce how Matthew integrates Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, and invites believers to receive Christ. And he highlights this section of Zechariah as the key way that the gospel is brought about in this text. He says, let us regard this passage, referring to Zechariah and how it's integrated into Matthew. It says, let us regard this passage as the chief part of this gospel. For in it, Christ is pictured for us, and we are told what to expect from him, what to seek in him, and how to benefit from him and make use of him. And as we think about how there are sermons throughout these commentaries from Luther, that right there is a four-part sermon. Um, that what you are told to expect from Christ, what you're going to seek in him, how you're going to benefit from him, and how you're going to make use of him. That is a sermon right there. If there's a preacher that's reading the church postals and they're like, Luther, help me preach my sermon this week. He just gave you a four-part sermon right Oh my there. goodness, there's so much here. So Luther goes through and he takes that Matthew's, um, and specifically Matthew's, interpretation, Matthew's re, slight rewriting, abbreviation we'll call it, of the Zechariah uh, reading from Zechariah 9, I think it yeah, was. Yeah, and he, Luther will comment on how there's words missing from Zechariah and how Matthew does this somewhat for sake of brevity, but also to highlight and to magnify key parts from that prophetic and, text. And so we'll be getting into that later, but right now Luther's going to take a almost a word-by-word review of this reading from Matthew. And he starts out with the word say, which I think is, is it? Uh, yeah, I think it still is say. It's say to the, to the daughters of yeah, Zion. That, yep, that's so, how it, and Mike, you're going to, you're like, I think it still says that. And it was interesting you put it that way because you have in the postal, Luther's Bible. That's the translation that they use in the Luther's works publication of the commentary on the sermon. And then when I read the text, I read it from the ESV. So especially when we get to Luther's commentary on the word gentle yeah. and how in the ESV they have the word humble. And we're going to have that. It's As we go through this, we're going to find these little differences between, first of all, we're going to have to keep in mind, and we'll try and keep you up to speed on the difference between Matthew and Zechariah and Luther and ESV, because each one of these has interesting things to it. But let's let's get into this. So when Luther says, say to the daughter of Zion, he says that word say means that this whole thing is being said to, to preachers. This, this, this particular reading 
is being you know the people who are speaking to the to the children of God to the people who are speaking to the community of saints say to the daughter of Zion is is that this 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 reading is addressed to preachers so Luther spends a little bit of time talking about that uh, and but basically it comes down to hey guys you know of course in Luther's day this was all guys but you know it, uh, it, it was hey guys you know pay attention this is for you Hey, preachers, this is for you. Luther will point out that there are two kinds of texts that preachers must use. One are teachings and one are exhortations. Teachings are things that you think your audience do not know that you are going to share with them, and it's going to be a point of revelation. Exhortations are things that they already know, but they need to be encouraged to put it into practice and habit. And a teaching for Luther is not academic. That's not how he's using the word teaching. He's using teaching to describe something that is unknown, that through proclamation becomes known to the people. So he starts out by saying this this reading, this this specific reading from, from Matthew, it has all sorts of great stuff in it for preachers and got to, to preach the gospel. And he says, one of the things that's interesting here is he says, anybody who preaches anything different is a wolf and a deceiver. And so, you know, and then he talks about, you know, well, what, what is, how do you recognize the difference between those who preach the true gospel and those who, pre- who are wolves and deceivers? And he has a couple of paragraphs on this, and he, he says it's, it's, there's, there's this tendency that the listeners will have when they're being taught by a wolf or by being taught by a deceiver, well, just using Luther's words, that they will think, hey, yeah, this is all great about Christ. That's great for the saints, but it's not for me. I, I'm not good enough. And that's the move of a wolf is to still speak about Christ but remove him from your life. And the wolf will make you feel like you don't deserve it, you haven't earned it, you haven't done enough, you haven't prepared enough for it, you haven't done enough good works. Whatever it is, the wolf will describe Jesus, but then doesn't deliver Jesus. He says that, you know, this faith is nothing. It receives, never receives Christ nor tastes him. It cannot feel any desire or love from him or for him. And of course, if you are always wondering, what do I have to do? You know, what, what's the bar? <laughs> yeah, that's, not, that's not a loving relationship. He said, it is faith about Christ and not toward Christ. And, and that is, and if he's, he makes a comment, that's the same faith that demons have. You know, this is a faith about Christ. And when a preacher goes out there and, and teaches people about Christ, but does not encourage a faith toward Christ, he, that preacher is a, is a wolf or a deceiver by Luther's words. All right, so we're going to now take our beer break. Our beer that we feature today is the Ludington Bay Brewing Company Dabuti Barrel Aged Ale. It is 8.1% alcohol by volume, and Ludington Bay Brewing Company says they named it Dabuti after Captain Dabuti, the feared pirate of Lake Michigan. I, I, when I saw that, I was wondering, what the heck? Dabuti? <laughs> <laughs> da booty. You know, I, I, my different ideas came into my head than a pirate. <laughs> I think they have to say it out loud just in case your mind keeps wanting to go that direction. As a barrel-aged American-style stout, it's got some bittersweet chocolate tones, roasted malt flavor. There's a strong vanilla 
uh, note to it as well. And it is incredibly dark. The, uh, the smell of it, as I bring the glass up to my mouth, the smell starts to hit my tongue even before any liquid has rolled past my tongue. This is a, this is a beer that I had to buy it in a four-pack, right? And so the first one I had, I wasn't so fond of. But you know, once you get used to, like, okay, this is what I'm going to be drinking, I, I've actually gotten. So I, I like it. It's not one of my favorites. I'm getting to the point where I like lighter beers. You know, I used to like heavy beers. I think on the show, I used to like really heavy, full-bodied beers. As I get older, oh, my goodness, I'm getting to be more like a dad beer type thing where it's like, oh, you know, I like those lagers. You know? Yeah, so it was good we reviewed the copper lager oh, that was in so our good. last episode. That was so good. One of the things that I have learned to appreciate is that there really are different types of beers for different moments. There is that that moment for the summer beach, and then there are those moments for kind of an, a cold winter evening sipping on a beer. Right. This Dabuti is not going to help me when my Dabuti is in the sand. <laughs> when the sun is on me and my booty is in the sand, this is not the right beer for you. No. But when your booty is in a chair by a fire in the winter and the snow is falling... And you're sipping a beer for a little while. It's good. One other interesting thing about this beer is the temperature that uh, London Bay recommends it's served at. It's 55 degrees. Oh, Which okay. is quite a bit warmer than, say, like a Coors Light, which advertises, you know, it's, it's cold peak that changes colors on the, the yeah. can as it's colder. Yeah. That they want you to serve this a little bit warmer. And we're having this a little warmer. Mm-hmm. So, good Cheers. beer. Cheers. Okay. Well, let's let's get back into this. So, so we all covered the section on the word "say," and Luther had a lot to to say about "say." Let's move on to the next phrase, which is the daughter of Zion. In these words, he refers to the other true faith, and he commands that the following words be spoken about Christ: that there must be someone who hears, receives, and clings to them in firm, firm faith. He doesn't say "say of the daughter of Zion." That of is uh, contrary to the delivery of the gospel. It is something that you say to somebody. So one of the things, he, he has this, this contrast of the, the fruit of the teaching of the wolves and the deceivers and the fruit of the teaching of the gospel. And so when you move away to, from that, that teaching, oh, this is, this is about Christ, and you teach, teach Christ for you, that the one of the things he says you're going to get that the, the the listeners are going to get into out of that is that this is the faith that alone is called Christian faith when you believe without any wavering that Christ is such a one not only for Saint Peter and the saints but also for you and even more so for you than for all the others your salvation does not depend on the fact that you believe Christ to be Christ for the godly but that he is Christ for you and is your own. This is why I am Lutheran right here. And this is going to be illustrated by Melanchthon and his apology to the Augsburg Confession in Article 4. This is that moment where Luther highlights in the small catechism when he says, who is worthy to receive this supper? The one who has faith in these words given and shed for you. That delivery of the gospel to a person who is in need it is a faith that causes delight in Christ. It's a faith that trusts the sweetness in the heart. It's, it's a love and it's a nourishment in the promises of Christ. And 
it is that application of Christ to my life from which the fruit of faith then grows. And and it's one of these things that he, he's, and it's exactly the type of stuff he says, you know, uh, Luther says, this faith causes you to delight in Christ so that he tastes sweet in your heart. Then love and good works will follow naturally. And one of the things that we're going to get into, that Luther will get into in this, is how that happens. And we're going to talk, we're going to touch on on the mechanism the, that suddenly when Christ comes to us it, it, as this, this gentle king who loves us for who we are, broken sinners that we are, you know, screwing up daily, <laughs> minutely, you know, that, that Christ loves us, comes for us, saves us, that suddenly, and, the, and we'll get into the, the great exchange that Christ not only saves us, but he gives us everything he has. And, and so out of this, then we now have the ability to, we can sit back and say, well, I don't need any of this stuff. I've got Christ. Hey, what do you need from me? I'll help you out. What do you need? You know, and, and where you really have uh, that, you, you mirror that, that, that joyful uh, attitude toward your neighbor. And that joyful attitude that's built on faith and not on my achievement of good works is something that the scholastics and the Pope criticized. And Luther knows that this criticism is on its way. And he says about the scholastics, for this reason, when they hear faith praised, they think love and good works are being prohibited. In their great blindness, they do not know what faith, love, and good works are. So when he talks about faith and how good works spring from faith, all of his opponents here is that he is not highlighting good works. Right. There were, in, in Luther's time, and actually, you know, as I was reading through this, I was trying, in Luther's time, there was an almost universal belief that good works are the foundation of our relationship with God. They're the kindling. They're the things that help spark and excite faith. You must do these good works to show that you are approaching and getting closer to God. Now, the Catholic Church has backed away. We are always careful to specifically say this is the medieval Catholic Church. But, you know, in this period, that was Luther's opponent, were the medieval Catholic Church that looked at good works as being the kindling, like you said, that this sparked a love of God. And, and that's, that is, and, and I'll use, <laughs> use a big word, anathema to, to, to the, the Luther's teaching on grace. And, and so, so he, he spends plenty of time complaining about this, but he has to because he's really swimming upstream. The whole culture, everything that he's in is pushing in one direction that good works are, are the foundation for, the future, for your relationship with God, or at least, um, uh, uh, I would say, critical to, for, your, for your salvation, or important, very, very, very important for your salvation. Um, might not be critical, might not, I think, the, if I remember my Catholic theology, even in the Middle Ages, they, you know, it, was, it was very complex, but the, they had that, that sort of, um, the, the good works were critical to this whole 
endeavor. And Luther said, for our salvation, good works are nothing. And so he spends a lot of time going on, on about that. Now, as I think about Luther's criticism of the Pope and the scholastic theologians of his time, and that may seem far removed from us, later when he talks about free will and how this passage from Matthew chapter 21 speaks against free will, I think that's going to be more helpful for our listeners today in trying to figure out how Luther's commentary um, is still fresh. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so then he goes, uh, and I think, I think ESV says, behold, um, and, but Luther says, notice or see in, uh, in the next, in, in Matthew 21, 5. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so when, when you know, Luther says, notice or see, and he says, and this is actually a calling back to the epistle reading. Because if you remember, last, our last episode, we talked about the epistle reading and in that epistle, there was a lot of discussion. Uh, Luther had a lot of discussion on waking us up. Uh, uh, that that sleep is is similar to faithlessness, and waking up is similar to faithfulness. Seeing the day of the gospel, you are awake when you see the light of the gospel. So when he uses this word for the second part of verse five, so the first part is say to the daughter of Zion. Now, here's where he's getting to now. The ESV says, Behold, your king is coming to you. He highlights the words notice and see. And he says, With these words, he would awaken us as from sleep and unbelief, as though he were asserting something great, strange, remarkable, something we have long wished for and should receive with joy. So one of the things, and this is where Luther starts going off on the limits of reason. And this is sort of interesting, and we only have enough time, I think, to cover this. I was watching, uh, I was listening to a, a, um, uh, somebody who's an expert in artificial intelligence. Let me take a step back. In, in my lifetime, um, I have seen uh, sort of a downgrading of theology and philosophy in the everyday world, where people are like, why would you study philosophy? Why would you study theology? What that, what's that got to do with anything, right? And so there was this, this downgrading over the past, I'll say, 50 years or so, and probably goes back before that, where, where you know, it was almost like that doesn't matter in today's world anymore, with artificial intelligence, you're introducing uh, things, <laughs> machines that that don't need things anymore. In that era of the last 50 years, we sort of fell into materialism, and and now you have these artificial these computers who don't really need anything. They don't need cars. They don't need houses. They don't need and so. They're sort of rediscovering a lot of what Luther is talking about here. And what, they're, what they talk about, uh, there's this, uh, this, this computer scientist was saying that, you know, you have to, you have to in, a compute, in an artificial intelligence world, you have to separate goals from objectives. Or, uh, I'm sorry, you have objectives and, and then you have, you know, the, the techniques that you use to achieve those objectives. And what he says is that those objectives are free of any logic. They, are, they exist because they exist. And that reason can't, 
can't determine what an objective is because these these machines don't need material, right? They're they're not materialistic. They don't need a car. They don't need a house. They don't need they don't need to breathe. They don't need food. They don't need any of that. So the objectives that you give to a computer um, are free of that. So this conversation about objectives and how it's free from reason made me think about how some people have criticized ChatGPT for its use of sources and its lack of transparency in sources and indeed sometimes its complete absence of reason in how it comes to a conclusion. Someone had asked ChatGPT to come up with a conclusion to Gilligan's Island. Now in the original series there wasn't a clear conclusion but ChatGPT came up with one free from reason or logic or any clear source. So one of the things, exactly, and one of the things that this computer scientist is talking about is that we, there has to be a, a, a clear line drawn between objectives and then the, the, the methods that are used to, to obtain the obje- those objectives. And what he's saying is that it is appropriate for, as an appropriate criticism of chat GPT to, to that you should be using reason and logic in your, in your attainment of whatever objective that is given to you. That, that is appropriate. But the objective of, hey, what's the conclusion of Gilligan's Island? That exists outside of reason. That exists just within itself. That is within itself free of it. Just we, you can't come up with reasoning that will tell you what that objective is. Objectives. So now let's connect this to the gospel lesson and Luther's criticism of reason. And he says, reason and nature despise all that concerns faith and are completely unsuited to it. So if we rely on our objective of salvation and we use reason and we use nature to get to that conclusion of salvation, we will find faith always diminished, we'll find faith always decreased, we'll find faith maligned. Because reason and logic and and the natural world we see and faith don't fit together. Faith, the, the, exactly. Faith exists independent of reason. And that has to be the just like any objective. We have an objective to be faithful. That objective is valid, even free of reason. As a matter of fact, all objectives are valid, free of reason. They cannot, according to modern uh, computer science, <laughs> they're they're coming back to what Luther is saying here, and and you know this this idea that reason is a whore. What Luther says when Luther says reason is a whore, what he's saying is whatever objective that you put in front of reason, reason is going to go do whatever it can to achieve that objective. Just like Chat, chat GPT, it's going to do whatever it can to achieve that objective. And it will use reason will work to achieve that objective, but the objective is not is not subject to reason. Objectives exist independent of reason. So philosophers will use the terms ministerial and magisterial uses of reason to describe how to get to a conclusion. A magisterial use of reason is where the reason is the teacher, and the reason is what gets you to the objective. A ministerial use of reason. Uh, is use that word minister like servant. 
Uh, if reason can be a servant to your objectives, it's helpful. But realize that your objective is always the key thing. Right. If reason becomes the teacher, that's what ma- magisterial, magisterial means, is the teacher. If reason becomes your teacher and guides and promotes and, and gets you to a spot, is that spot where you should be? If reason is a servant, reason isn't the only thing involved. One last point before we move on, and I think we're probably going to have to close off right here, but one last point Luther makes here that I thought was really interesting. There's a sentence where he says, but it is the nature of faith that it does not judge or reason by what it sees or feels, but by what it hears. It clings to the word alone and not at all to sight or appearance. And this is a this got me thinking, of course, of Romans 10, 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing. Faith comes by hearing that that what our faith comes by looking, looking to Christ, looking to scripture for for that, for the word or looking, having the, the word preached to you and holding on to that. That is faith. Those who are going to follow their sight and, and their feelings, they may take offense at Christ. But those who fa- firmly trust in the plain, pure word. They're not going to take offense at Christ, no matter what their reason may say. This is going to end episode 68. As we look at the first Sunday in Advent gospel, we got maybe a third of the way through what Luther has to say on this gospel so far. We got more to say, so we'll have another episode on this uh, gospel lesson from Matthew chapter 21, and we'll have another beer. Uh, More opportunity to look at Matthew 21 means more opportunity for beer review. (laughs) Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.